in terms of actual practice, there are various practices that are collectively called vipassana or insight practices, which help us to come to the understandings, to, to the wisdom, uh, the insight that um, that we need to overcome craving and to overcome attachment to the belief in self. Does that address your Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I was thinking that even with the idea of like recognizing craving and not just like automatically like acting on it and stuff, it still seems like if, if you're like an animal, you're gonna live at the expense of other things. I mean, it just seems kind of inevitable. Even if you're vegetarian, that's still gonna happen. So I don't know. But if, if you're an animal, that's very rich. That yeah, as all, like, all animals live at the expense of other things. They eat that's right. Stuff, and that's sort of inevitable regardless, you know, a certain amount of that or a certain degree of that. Is, you just can't get away from it. That's right, yes. Right. That, that's an absolute fact. And even if you're, even if you're a vegetarian, yeah. you know, uh, when they plow a field to grow corn, you know, it destroys thousands of other creatures. Mm-hmm as well as the habitat of other creatures. Uh, you know. And that's the nature of how things are. But that's that's not the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that is not the problem. The problem is that we get locked into this idea of uh, uh, me, I, me, mine, Mm-hmm. And we uh, act in the service of that self in ways that contribute to that, that increase the uh, amount of suffering yeah. uh, the, the, in unnecessary ways. Both because we act on other beings in ways that result in suffering, but even more importantly, in terms of what we can do about it is that, that they act on us in ways that actually increase our suffering. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the crucial part of it. You know, there are some, there are, um, Jainism is a, a, a religious system that mm-hmm. developed in India about very much about the same time as Buddhism. And uh, it takes a, Fairly rigid and simplistic view that you mm-hmm. know that the the most Im- important thing to do is to uh, avoid causing harm to anything else, that, and that's you know that you have to uh, purify your karma, and so uh, you go to great lengths to avoid as much as possible you can these inevitable uh, harms that cause us just by our our being alive. Mm-hmm. And according to that belief system, you know the uh, the harm comes from the action, uh, whether you intend it or not. And the Buddha's teaching was took a, a, a different approach. Said that what's important is the intention, mm-hmm. the action, much less so. All actions have consequences, but. It is the intention that is most important, and so it's it's a different point of view, and it accepts 
the reality of the way things are. That you can't you can't live in the world because it's the nature of life itself. Is that uh, all the different parts of life are supporting each other in both constructive and destructive ways, and it's just the way the whole uh, totality of, of the biosphere is. But the difference is when you separate yourself out from the rest of the biosphere and start creating unnecessary uh, harm and suffering for other living organisms. Now there's, there's where it becomes a problem. If you are just a part of the whole, uh, just as you are, then uh, you're not responsible for the, that, especially there's nothing you can do about that other than annihilate yourself. <laughs> there wouldn't be much of a solution. Because the nature of the biosphere is that the raw materials that you're made out of would just be used to produce uh, another or other <laughs> organism, which would just continue doing the same thing that you annihilated yourself to avoid. So. <laughs> So it's actually time to sit now. So save all those good questions for when after we finished. Good evening to those of you that arrived a little later and we haven't seen for a while. It's good to see you again. So let's. So, the question, of course, is what should we talk about? And uh, I know several different people have several different uh, balls in the air, so to speak. So, everything from, well, what am I going to do if I don't have a self to... How do we overcome craving? <laughs> Maybe that's, that's... I don't think they're mutually exclusive, right? Sounds like no, the answer to the other. <laughs> no, they're, they're very much interconnected, but but each, each of them by itself would represent a different entryway into uh, a large topic. So... so I was just wondering in particular, because we talked quite a bit last week about dependent origination, and in the introduction to that, we talked about the, the four truths and, and uh, the attachment to the view of self that is part of craving. So I, I just would like to know if, if, any of, if anyone was stimulated by those talks to spend some time thinking about what we talked about and as a result if there was any particular questions that had come up. It seems to me that it's all very circular. There is a... In a way it is. It's it's going deeper and deeper and deeper and and, uh, uh, circular, I suppose, in a sense that 
it, it's ultimately very, very simple, but it can take a lot, a lot, a long time clearing away all of the obscurations so the simplicity comes through. So it's a polishing kind of circular, I think. <laughs> but of course, something like dependent origination is, is describing one particular kind of circular. It's a, the process by which we perpetuate our, our ignorance or ignorance and our actions out of ignorance and the way that that causes us uh, over time to become just more firmly caught in uh, all the same patterns of action that, uh, that leave us so dissatisfied. So uh, maybe maybe where the circular we have to do is the opposite direction to, to you know, turn the cycle the other way to get out of it. <laughs> the way of looking at it. I did have a question. Yes, Terry. I was thinking of how it's possible to get these spiritual ideals, you know. Oh, I'm going to be really peaceful. I'm going to love everybody. And it creates this, like, they have this thing that's not really real, you know. And I'm just wondering how does one keep that in check? Or yeah. Well, I, I think what it represents, you know, if, if you have, have a bunch of ideals... Now that, that's important, especially if they're very wholesome ideals, like you want to be uh, a good, loving, caring, honest, generous, uh, compassionate person. Those are really good ideals. But I think what you immediately recognize in that is that becoming that kind of a person and pretending that you're that kind of a person <laughs> are totally different things. And you can pretend for a little while but and it's not that it, it doesn't work for very long and the important thing is to actually become those things but this touches on this other thing of, of self you know we uh, one of the problems with our view of self is that uh, we we look at our selves and there's things that we don't like about the way we are or there's ways that we'd like to be different. Or even if you're just an unhappy self, you want to become a happier self. But part of this view of self that we have uh, makes it difficult for us to understand that we can change. And that's one of the most wonderful things, truths, discoveries that you can have is that you can indeed change. You can change profoundly, and you can change rapidly. So, if you want to become a loving and compassionate person, it's entirely possible, but the way to do that is not by deciding that you're going to be one and therefore suppressing all of the... Uh, all of the inclinations and emotions that make you what you are in order to try to pretend to be something that you're not. I think that's what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, the worst thing about that is if you try to do that, you not only fail, but then you feel badly and you blame yourself and you become disillusioned and, and you think, well, I must be just a bad person, you know. 
here I, I, I want to become good and I failed, so that must be my inherent nature. Is, you know, <laughs> I'm a flawed being, you know. So you have to, you know, to change yourself, there's, there's several different approaches and they're not mutually exclusive. But they all require that there be some understanding, that, uh, some insight. If you, if you think about how any person normally is there's this huge mass of conditioning that we have whatever happens we react to it and and the way that any one of us reacts to it is different than the way other people would react to it and is different on the basis of our conditioning but our conditioning is our conditioning you know it is it is what has built up and most of it is below the surface where we can't even see it but it causes us to think and feel and act in a particular way, and it creates certain patterns. And so, because there is all of this conditioning that is somewhere out of sight, that's that we're not consciously aware of, but that keeps determining uh, how we react to circumstances and, and, and how we behave and how we feel in response to them, we have to we have to find a way to change that, you know. And I think in in the West, with psychoanalysis and various kinds of psychotherapy, there's a recognition that this is this is the problem that most of what makes makes us uh, feel and behave the way we do is hidden beneath the surface and it's subconscious and so the idea was that well maybe you have to go in there and dig it all up piece by piece and unravel it and rebuild yourself from scratch and it's virtually impossible to do you know it's uh, to do it in that way part of the reason is is that our nature is so incredibly complex that uh, people in psychotherapy can come up with uh, uh, an understanding of one aspect of a pattern of behavior but remain blocked because there are other aspects that yet that they can't see or they may even they may even seem to be quite successful in overcoming a long-term problem uh, in one context but then discover at some later time that in another context it comes back full force so to, and what this points out to us is that there is, there is a limit to what we can achieve through bringing things into consciousness and analyzing them and, and dealing with them that way. As a matter of fact, the, that, that's compared to what we do, what our minds do automatically all of the time uh, that is not conscious, those things that we do with conscious awareness, although they're extremely powerful and extremely important in, in their own right where, where they belong, they're, they're sort of 
laughably minuscule and inadequate compared to what really goes on in what makes up a, a human mind, a human being. There is so much to us, and it is so complex, and it's so interconnected. And of course, it's been built up by an entire lifetime, at least. <laughs> so, but this is I, this is what I think is so wonderful. That what I've discovered, and many other people have discovered in their lives, is that. This power of mindful awareness, because what it does, it brings all you really need to bring to a situation is the conscious awareness and the directed observation. And then let that information, let that data go into that deep unconscious wholeness where everything is worked out and let it trickle its way down and let the work be done there rather than trying to do it all at the conscious level, you know, which may be with 10,000 years and a, and a really good psychotherapist, you know, at three to five sessions a week of two hours apiece, you might you know, approach that. But, but you can let all the work sort of happen by, by itself. And there's the wonderful tools that we have to help make that happen. Just, they're very simple things, but following precepts and uh, practicing the perfections. These are simple tools. But what they do is they help us to focus mindful awareness on what's actually happening in our lives in one circumstance after another, one, one situation after another. Uh, and this is the point of dependent origination. In every psychological event of the dozens or hundreds of them that make up your day. In every single one of those events, this whole process unfolds. Something arises. It is perceived in a particular way, based on all your past experience, based on that massive, unconscious mass of, of mental formations. You interpret your experience, and and so you experience it in a particular way. So you you are now experiencing a, a moment of your personal reality and the nature of that experience is created by your mind. Right? So it's a mind-created reality in the moment. And then, also very, very powerfully influenced by this mass of, of uh, unconscious mental formations, you, you think and feel and act and react and tensions arise and you act on them. All of which has consequences. But one of the most immediate and most powerful consequences, even if you don't speak or act, is what takes place in your mind. Because everything that you experience, your reaction to it, this now becomes one more part of this whole mass that is determining the future. And that's really what karma is. There's a lot of misunderstanding of what karma is. But karma is it's a kind of causality, cause and effect. And it's the cause and effect that works to determine the kind of person we are, which in turn determines the kind of experiences that we have. So you can say about karma that your karma 
I mean your past actions and intentions. Your karma determines the nature of your experience in the present moment. Because it does. Because all the, uh, what you are experiencing in this moment is going to be the way your mind interprets whatever situation you're in, whatever things are happening, whatever sensations are arising as a part of it. But they interpret those to create a particular reality. So my experience right now, this is the result of my karma. And my, the next experience I have and the next experience I have, and these are all the result of my karma in the sense that this massive mental formations that I can't even see that determines how I interpret things and how I react to them, you know, that's what determines this experience. And so what I experience now is the fruit of everything that I've ever done that's built that up. It's the fruit of my past karma. To the degree that I'm going to generate volitional intentions in the moment, I'm making new karma. Because I'm determining the future experiences that I'm going to have. I'm determining the being that's going to arrive there. That's the becoming part of it, you know, the next birth, uh, which may only be in the next moment. The next, the next moment's a new birth. The next event that happens is a new birth. But the being that I am then is partly due to, to what happens in this moment. And of course, things are related. So if we're talking about if we're talking, if, if the theme that we're talking about is uh, aversion and, and, and anger arising out of aversion, then what's going to manifest in the future when something happens that creates aversion is I'm going to react to it the way that I've conditioned myself now and in all of the similarnesses in the past. And it's only in the present that I can change what I am in the future. But it is the remarkable power that we do have to change what we what we are in the future. And every time we just automatically respond the way that we're programmed to, it reinforces the pre-existing programming. But every time that we respond in a different way, we're creating a new programming which can cancel out some of that. So, in terms of how we can go about changing ourselves, if we understand that whatever experience we're having in the moment, good or bad, is created, that we, we, we have to own the causes of that. And if we recognize that just as true as that is, that how we respond in the moment is going to determine our future, then Right now is the time, is the opportunity we have to change ourselves. But the other thing is this practice of mindful awareness. The most important thing that we can do in the present moment, very often you can't change, you know, you can't decide that, well, I'm reacting to this circumstance by becoming angry, and I'm not going to do that. Well, you know, it, it doesn't work, right? Okay. But... What you can do is be mindful and and come from a place of understanding that, okay, this anger is arising, and you can understand why, uh, uh, meaning you can understand that, okay, it's all of my past karma that is making me 
feel angry right now. And so if you observe it, then the mere act of observation will weaken that so that you're less likely to become angry in the future. To whatever extent, in a given moment, you can make a decision. You can make a, a decision and choose the unwholesome, uh, choose the wholesome and reject the unwholesome. To the degree that you can do that, and you do it, this has a, an additional very powerful impact. But you have to recognize you can't always do that. You know, if you, uh, if if a person has a lifetime history of helping themselves when nobody's looking, then they may not find that they're able to change that immediately. But because because the force of the past conditioning is too strong. They actually are not in a position to make that decision. But if they continue to practice mindfulness, if they continue to contemplate the, the benefits of becoming a virtuous person, if they see that there's suffering in their life and they have a uh, sincere desire to make changes to uh, put an end to suffering, then all of these influences, all these things they do and many other different kinds of occasions are going to produce a change in them so they'll come to the point where they could respond in a habitual way by taking something, because nobody's looking, but no longer now is there this disproportionate imbalance. They come to a point where they're just about 50-50 now, or they're at least close enough that they can make a wholesome uh, they can make a decision and choose the, the, the path, a wholesome path of action and a wholesome and virtuous intention behind an action. And this, this creates a very profound, very radical effect. Hmm. Yeah? I was curious about like exploring emotions that weren't seen before. Exploring emotions that weren't when seen. When you talk about anger, yeah, because that happened today. Mm. People just recognizing like, oh, these feelings that hadn't really been looked at before. And it seems like that's important, you know, but then I'm like, okay, what's next, you know? It seems like it is important to recognize them. Well, of course, it is important to recognize them. Uh, you know, and, and of course, when you say recognize, part of, part of mindful awareness is clear understanding of what's actually taking place. And we do fool ourselves a lot. Sometimes we're angry and we deny it to ourselves. You know, or we have all kinds of feelings. We, we're, we're afraid, or, or we're sad, or we're this or that, and we'll actually hide it from ourselves. And that's because we're such complex. There's many different parts of us, and they're, they're you know, and and they're sometimes in opposition. So, if there's a very strong part of us that that feels like we should not be angry then uh, we'll hide our, our own anger from ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so part of mindful awareness is uh, to come to recognize what's really happening. It's come to know that when in fact there's anger there, uh, even though you might have previously masked it from yourself or called it something else. Or what almost everybody does when they have uh, anger is not accept that it's arising from within themselves, but the immediate assumption is it's completely 
justified, inescapable, uh, you know, that it comes from the outside. But it's also possible that in certain situations it feels so dangerous to be angry that you don't know it. It just kind of gets buried. I mean, this is something that happened, you know. That it's... That it felt so dangerous to be angry that the anger just kind of was this... Well, you mean that one way of restraining ourselves from our anger getting out of control is by suppressing it. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. didn't feel so much like it was... Yeah. Well, it was going to cause yeah. damage, but it felt like expressing anger was like yeah. so dangerous that... that but the other, thing, the other thing about mindful awareness, though, is it, it, works, it works quite well retrospectively as well. Mm-hmm. When, if afterwards you can, you can examine and see that the, the anger was present and you, you know you, you, as a matter of fact you're, you're talking about a probably beneficial suppression of something that is too strong to, no, something that seemed necessary at the time because it seemed too dangerous to express it, it was, yeah it right. seemed like expressing so, it was so like, you, who knows if it was or not but that's how it felt it felt like yeah. But the fact is that this is one of the problems with all of our, all of these patterns of, of uh, uh, mental reaction that we are prone to, is that uh, we're not aware of most of them. And, and that's not even because we're suppressing them because they're too dangerous to let out. It's just that we, we're... For all kinds of complex reasons, um, uh, we're just not in the habit of acknowledging and recognizing them for what they are, and and then we forget to uh, as well. You know, even when we say, "Well, I'm going to, I'm going to become mindful. I'm going to practice mindfulness in my daily life," and even when we focus on a particular. Uh, trait that manifests through us and say, well, in particular, I'm going to become mindful of this trait whenever it manifests, we forget. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so there's all kinds of reasons, from every, everything from just simple, we have, simply we don't yet have the habit of, uh, of actually practicing the mindfulness that we have uh, espoused through other psychological factors, hiding and suppressing it. Um, Lots of reasons, but that's why, that's the value that I see in reflection. If, uh, if you're working on producing the kind of positive change in yourself that you would like to see, then you, you're not limited to the mindfulness that arises in the, in the actual situation. You can, you can retrospectively be mindful. And that's what I was stressing to you as a practice, you know, before I went away in January, is a daily period of reflection. And to start off not trying to be aware of absolutely everything uh, about your uh, attitudes and intentions that's unwholesome, but focus on those that are, uh, that just, just choose something that's manageable to begin with and expand the scope. But then once you've chosen what that is, use reflection. The reflection, when you remember the instances that happened during the day that you had forgotten, this will have the effect of causing you to re- be aware of them at the time. Have, have, you, have you practiced this? And do, can, is there anybody that can 
vouch for what I'm saying? Yeah? Yeah? Yes. Yeah. I, I'm glad. Okay, I really like I'd really like you to all enjoy the wonderful benefits of this. And that's where that's where I just say things like the, uh, the precepts and, uh, and and the perfections allow us to target very specific behaviors and, and attitudes and work with them in a productive way. Through reflection, we're able to bring mindfulness to bear, even though we might have forgotten at the time, or even though we might have suppressed or hidden these things from ourselves. Yes? Yeah, question. Well, sometimes through reflection, I'm so... I, I'm very surprised. Although, you know, it brings up something like how... Well, how could I have done that? <laughs> yeah, right. And it's, it's very hard to not... I mean, you can, you can see, like, if you look at, say, generosity or something, or you mm-hmm. think, how could I have been... Or done something else, or or something new. Um, this, this is very interesting, like because say your past, what do you call it, past conditioning yes. is so strong, especially when it comes. I think speaking for myself um, to like say fear or phobia or paranoia or something. It is so strong. And let's say I'm in a, you know, like in a situation, and you know, you look at the perfections, and you know, I so desire to do the right thing, let's say, and be, like, say, generous or giving or loving or kind, uh, and yet somehow this reaction, you know, mm-hmm. is is just uh, so strong. Um, you know, I, I do the, the best I can. It's not what I'd like to do, but it's what I'm able to do. And then I think about it, and even though you know it's just extreme, um, it's so hard to change, but, but you're saying that gradually, um, if you're aware of it, and you're aware that it's coming from the past, and it was probably, you know, so habituated or, or whatever, that it will eventually, um, next time it comes up, maybe you could maybe move another inch or mm-hmm. it will weaken, weaken yeah. it and it's okay and you don't have to like seriously beat yourself up or feel bad that you can't. Yeah, as, as a matter of fact, it's really important to remember that to the degree that you beat yourself up, that's, that's going to get in, that's going to interfere. That is going to actually, because every, every, thought, every mental formation has its impact. And so, uh, you know, if you spend some time beating yourself up, what you're going, what you're doing is you're creating the conditioning that is going to hide from conscious awareness those things that you beat yourself up about. You know, so you don't want to do that. <laughs> you want to be accepting, you know, that's sort of like... Uh, so you accept kind of where you're at, or... Uh, yes, you have to. That, that's exactly how you accept where you're at. That doesn't mean that you have the slightest intention of staying there, but you accept this is where I am. My time machine's broken. 
I can't go back and change. I can't go back and, and change the things in the past that made me this way, even if I knew what they were. And the trouble is, you don't even know what they were. Right. So, so you can't just. So you accept. You, you just accept that this is where you are are now, and there's nothing to be gained by beating yourself up. But there there is everything to be gained by examining and clearly understanding the, the nature of, of this action or this impulse that's uh, arising. And, and especially understanding, you see, mindfulness allows a, a natural value to be attached to it. You don't need to judge it intellectually or judge it comparatively or anything else. Mindfulness recognizes that this, you know, remember that everything in your mind is geared ultimately towards reducing your suffering and increasing your happiness. So when mindfulness examines a behavior, an attitude, a reaction, and sees clearly that this is associated with uh, more suffering, less happiness, then that does the work. You don't need to judge it. And you don't need to dwell. And you don't. And need to go over and over. No, you don't. That's okay. right. Once, once you see the mindfulness, and you say, "Okay, this is how the mind is reacting," and then you, because of what happened in the past, and then you just <coughs> let it go and do its work instead of going over and over and over. Again. Yeah, you don't need to go over and over again. You know. Hmm. Yes. I just was thinking when you were talking about about like getting at yourself, getting angry at yourself or whatever, that it seems like it's really important to like have like all of you, if you want to call it that way, going in the same direction. And when you get angry at yourself, you create this division, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like like part of you isn't pulling anymore because it's like hiding, you know? Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons it seems like it's really important not to not to do that if you can help it. That's right. I don't know if that yeah. is a metaphor that makes sense or not. But. Yeah, no, it, it, it does make sense. Because you see, our, as, as, as I mentioned to you before, and hopefully everybody has sort of figured it out, that your mind is not one thing. It's many, many, many different interrelated processes. And they're not all going in the same direction. <laughs> don't all agree with each other. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But after you've examined it, uh, don't you need to form an intention to change it? Yes. In some small degree, at least. Yes. The, the, the intention is there. Probably the intention was already there before you even examined it. And, of yeah. course, you know you hold, you hold that intention, and that intention is very important. See, when you, when you see that, you know, I, I reacted in this way, and it... It didn't make me happy, and then the the intention is natural should naturally be there to make to to mm-hmm. make yourself happier in the future by not reacting this way, but to hold the conscious intention that yes, this is an unwholesome behavior that I would like to eliminate from my mind stream. I mean that's yeah. mm-hmm. absolutely yes. Did you have a question? I, I did. Have, yeah, I was curious. It was funny because you went right on the topic that I wanted to ask you about. But um, I, I was also curious. You you touched on this a while back about um, 
you're, you're pointing out that you can't kind of um, you can't kind of intellectually root into your subconscious and figure out what these kind of motivating beliefs are that are and these kind of conditioned thoughts are that you know maybe aren't serving you. But you mentioned that um, one of the kind of the natural byproducts of, um, of practicing meditation over a period of time is that um, I guess when you get to a, a still enough place and, and kind of lose the distraction that it kind of in this natural process your, your mind starts to, to process these things mm -hmm. um, and bring them to the surface and that yeah. real change can happen there. And I was I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about that. And I was um, just to kind of give it a little bit to make it more um, concrete for me, because that's mm -hmm. kind of actually one of my big motivators when I in my practice is kind of is, is the thought of yeah. eventually reaching that, you know, mm -hmm. um, eventually. Um, and and I was curious, is it something? I'm assuming it's not probably like a profound like you know knock you over and everything's changed for for the better permanently. And that it's maybe something you revisit over and over again. Um, I'm just wondering what that's. It, well, it, it can be either. Now, what we're talking about here is that we all have buried in our psyches, um, often as a result of a particular emotionally traumatic event, but we have. We have buried in our psyches things that act as nodes that affect many, that project out and affect many different aspects of our behaviors and reactions to the world. You know, just to, uh, not, not to oversimplify, but to use something that's probably fairly familiar, is that a person can have some event happen to them during their childhood which was quite emotionally traumatic, yet they believe that they've gotten over it and left it behind. Right? And probably, very good chance, almost never think of it unless something or someone very specifically reminds them of it. But what they won't be aware of is that that event has consequences that keep manifesting in all kinds of different ways, perhaps in in every uh, in, in every corner of their daily life and their interaction with their family and their colleagues at work and things like this. It has an influence. It 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 changes the tone or, or it affects the, the tone of uh, of their perceptions. Uh, so what will happen in meditation, and this is, this is quite common when you reach the stage of meditation that your mind becomes quiet and all of the normal everyday noise and, and uh, the, the things that, you, that are normally fill up our conscious awareness, when that all gets quiet, then these deeper things begin to come to the surface. And so what a person is very likely to experience in meditation. It often happens in retreat situations. It's very common in retreat situations. But it can happen when you're meditating at home as well. You have good concentration. Is that all of a sudden here this thing just comes up in your mind and it's just right there and staring you in the face. And now, depending on 
how much equanimity you have, depending on perhaps some of the other work that you've done. And, you know, maybe you've been indirectly approaching this problem for some time because, for example, maybe you've been working on uh, anger and suspicion and so you've been, you know, indirectly approaching this thing for a long time. So it may be that when it comes up in meditation that you that it can be a one time you just recognize it, accept it, just let it go, and you're free of it again forever. Or it may be that it has to come up and because it still has so much residue of pain or whatever associated with it that you can't quite completely accept it. And so it goes back beneath the surface and it will come up again and it will keep coming up until eventually you're able to accept it. You see, once you can accept it for what it is, and what is it? You know, it's... um, For one thing, it's past. For another thing, it's something that can be understood in terms of the basic human processes of, of, of all of us. We respond to that circumstance just because we're humans and we're prone to, to uh, various emotions, we're prone to suffering, we don't like that, we respond to it. Um, usually our reaction to a specific event like that is complex. We, we may be angry at another person that's involved, but we may also feel uh, guilt and blame ourselves. Uh, So we're as much angry at ourselves as the other person. So the only way that we can ever accept this event in a form that allows us to let go of it is to have enough compassion and understanding and forgiveness that when it comes up, we forgive everybody involved. We forgive ourselves. We forgive the other people. We forgive the situation, whatever happened, the things that made it up. That's the place that you want to get to, is a place where there's understanding, compassion, forgiveness. Once that's there, you can let go of it. And then, after that, it is nothing but a memory of something that once happened. And it also no longer has this effect of influencing in so many ways everything else that's going on in your life. Now, everything is interconnected. So uh, that, that doesn't mean that, you know, you, uh, there are other things that probably happened since then that were directly influenced by that event. But then they are events in their own right. You were traumatized when you were 10, but then you did something else to someone else when you were 14, and uh, they were directly related. Well, you know, the, the, the subsequent event will eventually have to be released and let go of as well. But this is the kind of purification that we can undergo in meditation that far more effective than hundreds of years of, of psychotherapy. We don't need to dig down into our psyche to try to find it. When the mind gets quiet and the circumstances are right, it'll come up to the surface. Then we can react and hide it again, in which case we'll accomplish nothing at all. But to the degree that we can examine it, accept it, 
then eventually, as I say, we come to the point where it's no longer a, uh, a, a, such a major factor in determining uh, our present mental states and our present behaviors and reactions. Hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about that thing about forgiving because it seems like, I don't know, I was kind of raised with this concept, this Christian concept. It feels really destructive in a certain way, like to try to force something like that, or to try to think one has to do that, or to try to. It feels extremely like destructive, you know. I don't think I, I don't ever. Know what else to say besides that, I don't know exactly how to. Did I ever suggest that you should force it? <laughs> mm-mm, mm-mm, but it's just kind of interesting because it definitely have that reaction. Like it's like being annihilated somehow, or it's like, yeah, that's the feeling that comes when at that thought, you know. It's like being destroyed somehow. Well, um, it, it, that may very well be true because you see, we, we construct our personalities um, incorporating all of these things. So we, we can have aspects of our personalities that are actually... Uh, partly constructed out of very negative emotional states, including hatred. And, uh, and it, 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 we can be very reluctant to forgive because then we lose that hatred, which is part of that particular aspect of our identity. But this is, comes around to the sense of, to the discovery of what really is the self, you know, the, the self is real, but the self is not a soul. It's not a permanent, unchanging thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not a single thing. The self is something that is... The, the, the self, any one of our many selves, is something that's created by the mind, out of the contents of the mind, and out of experience. You know. And, and we fool ourselves if we think, I have a self, or I am a self, because none of us really are. Mm-hmm. We're many selves. Um, uh, they may move from one to the other and be so, be so blended together, and we may move from one to the other so, so smoothly that we're not aware of it, and we can maintain the... Uh, illusion of the self as as, as being a, a separate object with clear boundaries, but it really isn't. And when you look inside of it, it's a construct. And not only is it a construct, it's a construct generated by the mind itself. And it's a construct generated by the mind for the purpose of achieving certain kinds of goals. Mm-hmm. Right? And these goals are in terms of easing our suffering or providing ourselves with gratification. So uh, easing our suffering is a really important part of the way we construct selves. And anger and hatred and non-forgiveness can be parts of that construct. And they can serve the purpose of, to some degree, in some way, relieving us of suffering. We can... We can ease some pain that we have mm-hmm. by holding on to, to some aspect of anger and hatred. 
And we may be reluctant to change that, and we will be, because after all, in some sense, we know that that's what's been protecting us from some degree of suffering. But if we can have the trust that ultimately, through understanding and forgiveness, and through letting go of the anger and hatred, that we will actually have even less suffering than, you know, be, be actually more free of suffering than the limited decrease in suffering that those things created before. That requires a lot of trust. That you don't push. That you don't force. You don't try to force yourself to forgive till you're ready to be in a place to do that. But if you can entertain as a reasonable possibility mm-hmm. and work towards that and satisfy yourself, that's, that's yeah. what that's. But I also think it has to do with like this denial of reality. And it might be just the way that I interpreted it, the way it was presented to me. Well, I can remember one time this one kid was one of my brother's friends was saying stuff that almost seemed like sexual harassment. And my mom was just like, oh, you have to understand him. You have to, you know, whatever. And it was presented with this kind of like no understanding of what was going on, you know. Okay, and well, so perhaps that's why it kind of has some of that associations. I'm not sure. but Yeah, that might be. But I'll just point out, too, that one of the problems with something about like the way your mother was responding to you is that Understanding someone else is not the same thing as denying your own feelings. Yeah, because that's what she said. She's like, oh, you have to understand him, you know. He's yeah. had a hard time and stuff. But he was, like, being, like, scary. Yeah. But you, you can have both. So you can, you, you, can, you can have your own feelings, and your, your feelings have a right to be there. And at the same time, you can work on, on understanding, you know. So, so they're not... So it's not the case that in order to... to Understand uh, that you have to deny your own feelings. Yeah, yeah, and I just think maybe that's why there's that association yeah. in my mind that makes it feel so hard. Um, how do negative emotions protect us from suffering? Well, sometimes they just pre- create a very powerful uh, screen, you know, that. Uh, If you can't avoid contact with a person or a situation that has caused you extreme suffering, and then what you can do is react to that presence with, uh, with anger and hatred, which makes kind of a wall between you and that person and keeps you from experiencing uh, the, the other suffering that you had. Now, it produces its own suffering because to be in a state of anger is not a pleasant state. Right. Is it a case of like transferring the blame to someone else or something? Well, like it, it certainly can be. Yeah, it, it could be that. It could be. Um, but but then blame is not a very useful. That's a negative emotion too. Whether you're blaming yourself or transferring the blame to somebody else or Blaming somebody else or transferring the blame to yourself. The blaming is a is a negative emotion, but blaming is, is blaming is a way that we protect ourselves too. As a matter of fact, now that you mention it, it springs to mind as a obvious thing that I've seen recently, um, and, and I suppose everybody uh, does it. Is that uh, 
we screw up and it has consequences. And we can be mad at ourselves, but we prefer to find somebody else to blame because that's a lot less painful than blame somebody else. So, so that's, yeah, that's an example of it. Yes? It seems that I read somewhere that the Buddha said that that I mean when it's all said and done Buddhism or the practice of Buddhism is all about kindness, loving kindness. Mm-hmm. Compassion. I mean, even underneath the suffering piece. Yeah. Because it seems like when you really reflect on what kindness really is it's very, very complex. I mean, it involves forgiveness and and not blaming. And I mean, it it, 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 it just just kindness. That simple word is huge. It's a whole universe of internal processes and growing into that capacity. So. It, it just seems that that's just so huge but so fundamental to, to all of this, underneath all these, these things we're thinking about. It's that it kindness, because when you, when you get to the point in your life where you really can see, it's almost like being able to see up and over a circumstance and see how things fit and, and, and just being with that. It's very kind. It's too much to say. But... Uh, that just seems so big. Yeah. Well, uh, Shanti said it, I think, in a, in a very good way, beautifully concise. Uh, and uh, what he said is that the sum total of all the suffering in the world is a result of trying to make ourselves happy, and the sum total of all the happiness in the world is a result of trying to make other people happy. And at first, this may just sound like some nice words, uh, or you look at it, and it may be you, you, your mind may come up with all kinds of objections. But the deeper you go into it, the more you discover that that really is true. That this is the problem: is that we go through our lives. Ultimately, what's motivating everything we say and do, in in sometimes in the most subtle ways, but it's still there is that we're trying to make ourselves happy. And if we look at how well that's worked out, it really hasn't succeeded at all. But then we'll look, and interspersed among that have been those occasions when there has been love and caring and kindness and compassion. And we have acted not out of a desire to make ourselves happy, but out of a desire to help other people or to make them happy. And we'll see that that's actually where where the truest happiness has come from. So if you can if you can see that and understand that, then you could translate Buddhism as as being the Eightfold Path is a way of learning how to get over trying to make ourselves happy because that doesn't work and instead being loving and compassionate and as a result of which we will become happy we will finally succeed but it doesn't seem to me that happiness and love 
makes any distinction between self and that self. Because I think there's this women's conditioning that maybe guys don't get, that women still get a lot of, like, you're supposed to make everybody else happy. You don't even count. You're supposed to totally self-sacrifice. And that's, like, as ridiculous as the other thing. <laughs> well, now, see, that's the other thing about it, is, you know, that one thing, this, this statement of Shanty Davis is still couched in terms of self and other. But the really important thing at the core of the Buddha's teaching is realizing that that distinction doesn't really exist. And that mm. is the problem, is that we make that distinction. That, you know, uh, I am the other. You are the other. And so it's, it's the illusion that you separate one part of the whole as self and, and attempt to gratify it at the expense of the rest of the whole. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. There, there, was, there was something else, you know, that I, I was reading about in one of the books you gave me about, um, like having a direction. And if your direction is trying to hold on to what is pleasant and trying to get away from unpleasant, yeah. And you have no direction at all. Yeah. And I mean, if also, I don't know if you have any happiness at all because you know, because <laughs> no, seriously, because I was reflecting on that. You know, you try to stay comfortable, you try to stay secure, you try to kind of enforce pleasant things or kind of make them last long or go after them, and then. But at the other time, something, you know, you, you feel discomfort or insecurity or you're not, you know, you want to get away from something that's unpleasant or someone who is unpleasant. And then you spend so much time and energy and then you just, end, I don't know, I end up suffering. That's right. <laughs> what you end up with is struggling. You're, you know, yeah, you struggle. You're, you're busy struggling, resisting, and resisting, that's so resisting. Yeah. Yeah. And the cause of suffering is well, see, that, those things are wanting things to be different than what they are. What they are, trying to make, yeah. and, and with that goes trying to make yourself happy. Yeah, trying to make yourself happy, yeah. Right. So, you know, the. Uh, uh, The self, this the self that we're talking about all of the time. We 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 are just naturally, spontaneously, always going around having the sense of self and the boundary between self and the rest of the universe. And that boundary is always a place where struggle is taking place. We'll never, we'll never be satisfied. There will always be something more that we want or something less that we want. And, and we, it's not accepting things the way we are. But we are a part of the whole. People, what do they want? They, they, they want, they fear death. 
we're attached to to this self, and uh, we want to know that this self. Gee, you know, I I don't want to lose this self. Um, and so some people they take up religion or a spiritual path in the hopes that they're going to discover that they have a self that is not going to die. And maybe even that they have a self that somehow, if things are done just right, this self is going to be somehow completely happy, you know. And that's the problem. That's that's the illusion. Because there is no permanent abiding self. There is only the constructed, constantly changing self that is a part of the whole, of the totality of everything. And of course, the other side of of that, what sounds so bad when people hear that, you know, and the Buddha said, this is subtle and difficult to understand. He said, people, it's going to be hard for anybody to understand this teaching because it's subtle and difficult to understand because the way we usually approach the self is, is, well, I hope I've got a permanent self that I can somehow make eternally happy. But if not, there is only annihilation, you know. And, and if there's only annihilation, nothing means anything and everything is pointless. And so the, these, these, this was the dichotomy. These were the philosophies that were very powerfully prevalent at the time of the Buddha. There were all of those people who were in search of the permanent abiding atta, or soul. And, and then there are those, the materialists, who said, there is no such thing. When you die, you're dead, you're gone, and that's it. And, and so, better make yourself as happy as you can now. And there's no basis for morality other than, you know, uh, if, if you get if you get caught and get hurt as a result of your actions, right? So those were the two extremes. And so Buddhism is a middle way, but it's a middle way that's really difficult to understand because it's a middle way that says, no, there is no self. The whole idea is a mistake. Not only is there no permanent abiding self, there is no separate self at all. Never has been, never will be. And if you can let go of that idea, you gain everything. Because instead of being the small, isolated part of reality, struggling against everything, you become you become the totality of the reality. The Buddha was known as Tathagata. Gata means gone. Tathata means suchness. So the Tathagata, as he was known, was the being who was gone to suchness to thusness, to isness. As uh, in Jonathan Livingston Seagull, there's this one statement, the only thing I ever remember from this book, is imagine the universe as perfectly as you can, and now realize that the isness has already imagined it more perfectly. You know? And you are it. That's the whole thing, that you are this one, you are this one I, of the whole that is seeing the whole. But you're not separate and different than any... We're all the same. We're only one being. We're all the same consciousness. 
Okay. <laughs> but something, some essence, seems to have a continuum. Because we're talking about something called karma that might, there, there is something about our suchness that seems to uh, have, well, like I said, have a continuum. Mm-hmm. If we if we if we uh, go in the direction of rebirth and this kind of thing, so so I know the personality doesn't have a continuum certainly, and yeah. memory, right. uh, mind type memory doesn't, but there is presumably it seems there is something that has a stream beyond this life. Mm-hmm. So how does one talk about that? How does one think about that? The essence of that? Okay. And one are, is, are there words? As, as subtle and, and very profound. And, and uh, uh, you have to be very careful with the words <laughs> for that reason. But when asked about this, what the Buddha said, what is reborn? is the consequences of one's karma. He never said there's anything that's carrying that karma that passes from one life to the other. On the other hand, you are the owner of your karma. And he spoke of, on his enlightenment, recollecting past lives. But he never said, well, there's this many billion creatures and out of all these many billion creatures, there's this thousand that were me, and they're all in a row linked together like the links of a chain. He never said that. Although a lot of people assume that. They assume that that's what he was talking about. If, if there is no permanent abiding self, if there's only a stream of consciousness, well, let's look at a stream of water. Let's, let's imagine that consciousness is like a stream of water. It's like a river flowing through time. And a lot of things can happen in a, a, a stream of water uh, as it passes through certain parts of the channel. Uh, it will tend to make ripples, ripples and waves. And, and they will exist and they will... Uh, You'll see them, and, but what are they made of? Water. New water, old water. Other places, there will be a whirlpool farm. And the whirlpool, you can see it. You can identify it. Hey, look at that whirlpool. Yeah, I see that whirlpool. Yeah, oh, there's another one over there. They're not the same. That one's, that one's bigger and that one's smaller. Yeah, but this one has more turns to it. But what are they made of? Water, right. And then... As this stream of water flows through the banks, you know, or flows through its channel, um, part of the bank comes down, and there's there's uh, some mud and some sand and some rocks, and it's carried along, and, and and they stay together. But as it goes along, it drops the bigger rocks and then the smaller ones, and eventually all the little particles become dispersed in in the hole. They're there. 100 miles downstream, you could still find them there, but nothing like when they went in. Or you could throw 
a handful of leaves onto the water, and for quite a long ways they'll stay together, you know, until something happens to disrupt them. In the stream of consciousness, the karmic imprints are like that, you know, and uh, all of us. We're the same stuff. We're the we're the we're the same stream of consciousness. But you know, some of us are whirlpools, and some of us are ripples and waves and things like this. And we come into being, and we come out of being. And, we, and, and others come into being, and, and the same water that was a whirlpool at one time is a wave another time. And the karma that we carry that's carried along in the stream. You know, it's. Uh, it's, it's certain things kind of stay together. So that a certain collection of karmic consequences tend to to stay together as as the the stuff of consciousness and matter passes along. But there is no separate self that's passing from one lifetime to another. Mm-hmm. We are each of us. You know, you, you are all me in a another lifetime and we're all we all have that relationship to each other uh, there's not one person who died 40 days before he were born that was you in a previous life <laughs> although there are some belief systems where, where they believe that is true you know they believe there is some kind of a self that puts on a new body one lifetime after another, discards the old one, puts on a new one. You know, but I mean, look in that way. That's nothing but a belief. Oh, maybe it's true. I don't know. And maybe there's a God and maybe there's a lot of other things that are based on belief. But when we look at ourselves, when I look inside myself, there's no Atman there. There's nothing. I can't find anything that that I, I could say is a self that can pass from lifetime to lifetime. I find that I have that I'm blessed with certain predispositions, and other people are blessed with different predispositions, and maybe some people are cursed with certain predispositions. And where did they come from? Well, everything is caused, and so everything is is the, is a result. Everything is an effect of something else that was caused. So the predispositions that I'm blessed with or cursed with, I can regard them as karmic consequences. But to try to claim selfhood in whatever consciousness developed those predispositions, you know, there's no basis for it. And no value anyway. I mean, what what good what good does this idea of being the same entity in previous lifetimes really do you anyway? Or this idea that when you die, I mean, if, if you were one specific individual who could somehow be called you in a previous lifetime, how has that person benefited by you being you now? Right? You know what I'm saying? When you look into it, you don't find the benefit that people might hope for when they cling to the idea that 
I will be reincarnated, or I am the reincarnation of Napoleon. It's like, so I get to take credit for... I mean, we can all take credit for whatever beings in the past that we want to, uh, but what good is that going to do us? Well, maybe if we get somebody to believe us, they'll be impressed, and our <laughs> ego will be gratified by them being impressed by the fact that we were Napoleon or Cleopatra. But other than that, it's a pretty limited benefit that comes from it. You may have memories of other lifetimes, and you may learn, you, you may gain great lessons from those memories, and that's wonderful. But the, the lessons that you learn from the memories are not dependent upon you claiming some kind of continuous selfhood that underlies that and is the carrier of that. You're just very, very fortunate, maybe, that you can can tap into the common pool of memory that perhaps points to where some of your predispositions come from. Audrey? Well, I've been taught um, and also found it useful along the path uh, taught about the, uh, it's called the lowest scope of motivation, the lower scope of motivation where you're motivated to practice dharma because um, then you'll be able to take uh, a better human rebirth with um, conditions more conducive to practicing dharma. And I, I found that quite useful when you consider if conditions aren't present mm-hmm. to practice dharma, which is true for many people uh, around the world. And at the same yeah. time, you're noticing, gosh, this is making me happier. Mm-hmm. You know, but that could be... Um, Yeah, and I, I won't deny that these beliefs are, are useful because they can be very useful, but they can also they, they lose their usefulness at some point. You know, uh, belief in Santa Claus might help some children to behave better, <laughs> right? Well, and and so and then and, and and you can't deny the value of that. That's that's a good thing, but at the same time. You know, so long as when you get to the point in your spiritual practice when you're ready to start overcoming your attachment to this self that you are, and I'm not denying that there is a self that's real, but just that it is conditioned, constantly changing, and it's mind-generated. It doesn't have any distinct boundaries, and it's not really a separateness. When you get to the stage in your spiritual practice when the most important thing you can do is to be less attached to this idea of self, then notions like the one you just mentioned begin to become obstacles rather than benefits. Well, yes, but ironically enough, uh, and so appropriately enough, now we know we're going to get close and it's ironic that what I just mentioned helps you let go of this lifetime, mm-hmm. which is really all we're talking about. Okay. 
So because you're projecting a different, your big, yeah. big hairy self is getting projected, you know, into a different. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting how that works, and it's um, yeah, anything like that that teaches release. Well, let me point out another way of take of, you to other places. I think something that's even more productive, like um, what we do find in uh, Buddhist cultures, is the belief that you can make merit, and through this merit, you will be reborn in better circumstances in a next lifetime. And uh, the attitude that comes from that is, well, I don't, I don't have the uh, time or the energy or the motivation to practice to make changes now. So what I will do is I'll go ahead and engage in as much greedy, grasping behavior as I feel like and I'll donate a certain amount to the temple. <laughs> you know, and I'll buy new robes for the monks once a year and so on and so forth. You know, and I'll get this merit that's going to make me, uh, give me a better life. But there's a better interpretation too that we could take is, uh, you know, and, and first of all, I'd like to say I, I think that you should strive for your own liberation in this lifetime. And the Buddha only taught suffering and an end to suffering. You could strive to, for a complete liberation of becoming a fully awakened being. Or you could strive for uh, uh, becoming a much happier person in this lifetime. And that, you know, what I'd like to say, one of the things that I've just recently come to appreciate in the Buddhist teaching, I I, I think that only monks and monasteries benefit from systems that encourage people to gain merit uh, for a life, for a better life in the future. (laughs) But anything that encourages people to make the changes in themselves that will result in them being happier in this life, this is a really positive benefit for a person. So... A person, if we speak of a person of, uh, of the least capacity who um, is trying to, you know, even if their motivation is, you know, they've said, oh, I don't stand any chance of becoming enlightened this lifetime. But um, what I can do is try to keep the precepts and practice the perfection so that I can be reborn in good circumstances in the next <coughs> lifetime. But if they do that, if they succeed in doing that, they will become, if they succeed in keeping the precepts and practicing the perfections, they will become a generous, virtuous, patient person. Even if they never sit down to meditate, they will become, to the degree they see, they will be generous, patient, and virtuous. Which means that they will enjoy all kinds of benefits that come from being that kind of a person in the world and in society, they will also have tremendously weakened the hold that desire and aversion have on them, and they will become happy, loving people. So whether they become enlightened or not, you know, they will have they will have achieved something very powerful and very wonderful. And what I've realized recently is that, you know, if everyone could at least adopt the practice to that extent, if they could 
become happier, less driven by greed, and less prone to anger and hatred, that human beings might survive on this planet for another hundred years, or even a thousand years or longer. Um, I mean, it would be really great if, you know, 10% or maybe, maybe even more of all human beings become enlightened, you know, if they could overcome the attachment to self and if they could overcome craving, man, would we ever transform what it was like to be born human in the future generations. That would remarkably change. But you know, if everyone could at least start practicing uh, uh, generosity, virtue, and patience and making those changes in their life and become happier and and less prone to desire and aversion, we might actually pull through. We might actually last long enough that 10 or 20 or 100% of us could become enlightened. So, so I, I think that the, 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 these it may be a mistake to cling only to the highest goal. At, at the same time, depending on where you are in the path, sooner or later you're going to have to give up all the different forms of clinging to a personal, separate, abiding, permanent self. Because there just is not any such thing. Hmm. Uh, My point is, you know, what better way to do that than to let go of this lifetime? To have a teaching that gives you a mind stream. Mm -hmm. That is you. But, if, you know, if people in our country would just let go of this lifetime, (laughs) we'd have a completely different Right now. Yeah, well, if, if everybody could practice uh, generosity and, and, and patience in order to be born in a better lifetime next time around, uh, they'd all be happier right now, too. <laughs> so it's the same thing, isn't it? I mean, well, it's, it's yeah. beautiful. I don't know, I, I guess I'm not. Like, Lord Buddha gave us this motivation. Yeah. The same motivation. Really selfish pick. Here, here's our motivation. But you know, I'm going to teach you how it really is. You know, yeah. you're actually next lifetime. You're not this lifetime. Yeah. So you can like do. You know, and, and, and it's and, true and too. Practice to morality with the proper motivation that is sustaining, it, it, not like a should. It, it's like the handful of leaves on the stream staying together. If in this lifetime you you practice as much virtue as you can. It may not be you that's born in another lifetime, but those, the, the karmic consequences of, uh, of, of that practice will be present in, in future consciousness. It may not be the separate you that you experience right now, but it actually will be you because we're all you. So in that sense, it, it is true. In that sense... Any, any good that you do in this lifetime, you will reap the benefits of. Because there is just the one. There isn't all this multiplicity that we imagine. So there's no one else but you to reap the benefits of it. So, so what, what was the Buddha referring to when he talked about past lives? 
when he talked about past life? He was very circumspect in talking about it. He spoke about it in uh, when he was talking about his uh, enlightenment, that he reviewed past lives, many, many past lives. And um, if, as, as one of the cities, a person can see the lives of other beings, uh, then they can learn the, the lessons that cannot be learned from just observing one's own life, which is what he seemed to be saying. He also said he, re, he reviewed the uh, uh, past lives of all kinds of different sentient beings. And he saw that the same patterns were present over and over again. But in, in most of his direct teaching, he was very circumspect about referring to uh, anything as a specific past life. I think that it was a situation where uh, the, the prevalent view in the society in India was one that was very attached to the idea of reincarnation. It came from the idea that the, uh, that the ritual sacrifices of the Brahmins were actually part of their purpose was to perpetuate the lives of the gods and then uh, when uh, a person fulfilled their duties within society then this assured their continued reincarnation, not rebirth, but reincarnation, because it was the idea of a permanent self there. This is this was a prevalent belief at the time. And so I think he made use of it in a very careful way. He clearly distinguished, he said, I do not teach reincarnation, I teach rebirth. And of course I he also taught no self. And he was asked, you know, well if there's no self, who gets reborn? And he said uh, he compared it to uh, lighting one candle from another, you know, and there's, the, there's, there's nothing that passes from the one candle to, to the next. And when he spoke about karma, he was talking about five levels of causality, and karma is a very important and powerful one of the five, but it's only one out of five levels of causality. There were also some beliefs at that time which have carried over to the modern day and there there are even some uh, Buddhist traditions that hold this view that absolutely everything is karma. And uh, what I was talking about earlier this evening was more what the Buddha taught, that your experience is your karma. But there is also physical causality and that follows the rules of physical causality. This biological causality, which is based in physical causality, as we know, physical processes and genes cause animals and animals in a particular way. This mental causality, which is the non-volitional mental causality, minds work in a particular way. And so there's a level of causality that's mental. And then there's karmic causality, Karmic causality is the way that we form our own minds. Our minds create our reality, but through our actions and intentions, we we create our minds. We create the massive mental formations that is the mind that generates our reality. 
and then uh, of course the highest level of causality is the uh, level of dharma which allows us to uh, through wisdom overcome being caught in this perpetual chain of paticca samuppada I was thinking when he's talking about creating our mind, though, I mean, in a way that's true, but it's not true in the sense that one is tempted to think about it. <laughs> because it's not like, like, I can sit down and I can say, I'm, no, I'm going to yeah. make this object. I can make yeah. this object. But this that's is right. a totally different there, there is no I that creates my mind. But rather, my mind is a creation that is the result of my the karmic mind actions. Mind is kind of its own existing so, so, karma is about how you create your mind. And the consequences of karma are the reality that you experience is the reality created in the moment by the mind that you have produced as a result of your previous intention. <laughs> yeah, but it's a little bit like I cure cuts, you know? I cut myself in this heel, and I healed that cut, Damn, I know how or what, or, you know That's what I mean? Right, yeah. It's like you, that, you know, it's not so conscious. Yeah, you, you know, you, you say, I walk down the street, but, you know, hey, <laughs> all you did was decide that you'd like to be down the other end of the street. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Well. We're probably out of time, huh? Yeah, I think we're out of time. <laughs> so, but. Hopefully this discussion has meandering path touched upon some things that are helpful to you. So be be quite willing to give up your attachment to self because by giving up to self you gain the world, you gain the universe, you gain everything. You you win it all. It, it may seem like a terrible, risky gambler. You're going to put up everything you have, my whole self. I'm going to put it on the table and wait for the spin of the wheel. <laughs> okay, well, thank you all very much.